Welcome back to the Mark Claire Show. It's another Monday, and your boy Mark Claire is coming at you again from the. Uh, if you're watching the video, which you can find on YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, uh, let's see, BitChute. I try to make it easy for you. I try to put it absolutely everywhere. You can find it Rockfin, of course, always on Rockfin. Uh, the ever dwindling Mark Claire Show Studios, as this will be one of the final podcasts I record in the in the current iteration of the Mark Claire Studios V1. We're about to be moving houses, so we're going to be in V2. So. Everything around me is slowly coming down as I wrap things up. The first era, if you will, the first year or so of the Mark Claire show. It's been a hell of a year. And I'd say if you're still with me after last week, let's just say that. If you're still with me, I think I got you. I think we're on a journey together. Uh, of course, you can be on this journey with me in many, many ways. You can just show up here each and every week, which I appreciate. You could leave me a five-star rating and a great review on Apple Podcasts. That's a big help. You could go and click subscribe on the YouTube channel, the Mark Claire Show YouTube channel. That's a big help. You could, and you definitely should, support our great sponsors at Fox & Sons Coffee. My man, Stephen Fox, has been a supporter of the show. I just, I have an empty mug because I just finished it. It's late in the afternoon now, guys. So I, I got to kind of stop drinking coffee at some point uh, for me. But uh, Stephen Fox came to me early on in the show, said, I'd like to be a sponsor for your show. And I said, sure thing, Stephen, but not so fast, pal, because I got to try your coffee first. I'm not just going to go hawking anything to these people, all right? These people trust me. So I tried his coffee and it was fucking awesome. The beans are incredible, incredibly fresh, incredibly flavorful, and there's something for everybody. So I want you to head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Find yourself a bean, any bean. Find yourself a couple because any order over 25 bucks is going to get you 18% off. That's right, 18% off using discount code MCS. And I should say, there's been a little confusion. The discount code will not work on the subscriptions, but that is for a good reason because Stephen Fox is currently discounting all your subscriptions, $4 off what's already a great deal to get the two pound bag delivered directly to your house every single month. Well, well worth it. You are not going to be disappointed. I can say this because I try the coffee and I drink the coffee and I get the two pound bags delivered to my house every single month and I do pay for them out of my pocket. Can you believe that? He doesn't send me free two pound bags. Now I got some free samples, but now I'm on my own volition. All right. No one's forcing me to get these bags delivered to my house. Uh, only I have made that decision. And I hope you will also make that decision or at least make the decision to give it a shot. That's all I really ask. So head over to foxandsons.com. Use that discount code MCS at checkout. And my friends, we're about to be on another wild ride, another wild journey. If you are not familiar with the Jerry Sandusky case, you're probably at least familiar with the uh, the media version of the case. But if you have not seen any of the material, this was one of the uh, one of the top five lies I brought up in my discussion with Pete Quinones uh, several weeks ago. Uh, and so I decided I'm going to do a deep dive of some kind on each one of those. So today I have John Ziegler to be discussing his work on the Jerry Sandusky case. Without further ado, here's John Ziegler. My guest today is a documentary filmmaker, political commentator, uh, an author, as well as a podcaster. His previous podcast, With the Benefit of Hindsight, uh, serves as a full breakdown of the Jerry Sandusky scandal, I suppose, if you will, that we're going to be discussing today. He is also currently the co-host of the Death of Journalism podcast. Very pleased to welcome John Ziegler. John, welcome to my show. Mark, thanks so much for having me. 
Sure thing, John. And it's uh, it's hard to know exactly where to start with all this. As we were talking before the show, there's no way we're going to go through everything, uh, even close to everything related to the the Jerry Sandusky scandal uh, on on this episode. But I think maybe the best place to start is kind of just with yourself, uh, a little bit about who you are. And I think within that kind of why you became the person to go into this. Why are, why are you, John Ziegler, out of all the people in the world, the one that decided I'm going to try to get to the truth of this? this? This doesn't smell right to me. Well, my wife has asked me that almost every single day for the last uh, 12 years. <laughs> so I ought to have a pretty good answer to that. Um, well, I, I've had a very unusual career that um, has brought me <laughs> almost into a Forrest Gumpian like persona where I have been attached to a, a lot of very big stories in some pretty substantial ways in, in all sorts of different uh, venues and, and platforms and mediums and through very different endeavors and jobs. And when this particular story broke back in November, 2011, I was a documentary filmmaker, a conservative documentary filmmaker who had a legitimate career. I, I had produced two documentary films at that point the the last one had had debuted live on the Today Show in a very contentious interview with with then Today Show host Matt Lauer, and that was highly unusual for conservative documentary to debut on the on the Today Show, which at that time had an enormous audience and was the number one uh, morning show in the country. And um, I was looking for another project, and I was specializing in media related stories, where basically stories where I. I sensed or, or knew that the news media had blown the original narrative. And that, that was really the, the essence of my first two documentary films. And I saw what was happening in State College, Pennsylvania, with this enormous media firestorm. And people who maybe are too young or don't remember, I, I mean, there, there's almost no way to overstate just how big this media firestorm was. I mean, it was the biggest sports story of the year, probably the decade. Um, and it was one of the biggest news stories of the year, if not uh, longer than that. And basically the story was that Jerry Sandusky, former assistant football coach at Penn State, had been arrested on numerous charges of child sex abuse. And that Penn State, led by the legendary head football coach Joe Paterno, was being accused of having at least enabled, if not covered up, his child sex abuse. And this created just endless news coverage, especially for that first week that resulted in Joe Paterno being fired just before his final home game after having become the winningest coach in the history of college football, as well as the firing of Graham Spanier, who was a very well-respected liberal president of Penn State University. And there were two other administrators who were charged in this situation as, as well. So the entire media narrative was Penn State had covered up for this horrible child sex abuser named Jerry Sandusky, who was thought to have been a beacon of the community, a longtime assistant coach, the founder of a very, very prominent and successful charity for at-risk kids in the state college area. It was all a fraud. It was all a farce. The Penn State program, which had been esteemed as being the very rare example of being able to win while doing things right and having high moral character and following the rules was all a big fraud. 
And and the media, of course, love this narrative because especially, you know, so many reasons why they love this narrative. But one of them was that Joe Paterno was not only a squeaky clean goody two shoes, but he was also a Republican. And uh, and most of the sports media and obviously all the almost all the news media are very, very liberal. And, and they've been trying to get Paterno for a long time. And then finally, almost literally before just before he hit the finish line of his career and his life, they got him. And what do you mean by trying to get him? Were they, do you think they were looking for a scandal for all these years just to take this guy down? Well, they were, they were very much interested in anything that would expose Joe Paterno as not being the guy he was portrayed to be because they, they didn't like him, not just because he, he was a Republican and, but also, he he had a very contentious relationship with the news media, the sports media. He didn't have any respect for them. Uh, they would battle all the time. It was, you know, kind of a cat and mouse game situation. And, you know, Paterno knew that these people were a bunch of frauds because he dealt with them uh, on a daily basis. I mean, sports media people, and I've been in the sports media, uh, are are generally very dumb, very lazy, very liberal they're, they're the scoundrels of humanity. I mean, they have the easiest job in the world. Now, many of them are losing their jobs right now because the business model of sports media has completely broken and they've gone so woke. Um, but uh, this was even before that, uh, the whole woke them thing. But, um, you know, my my red flags were, were going off. My spidey senses were going off immediately about this story regarding the Penn State Joe Paterno angle. I, I didn't, you know, I had a recollection of Jerry Sandusky. I knew that he had been very successful. He was he was the defensive coordinator for two national championship teams for Penn State. I had grown up in Pennsylvania, but in Philadelphia, which really culturally is completely different from State College. It's not that far geographically, but there's the idea that Philadelphia and State College have any relationship to each other is is ridiculous unless you actually live there. I was not a Penn State fan. I was a Notre Dame fan growing up. I was obviously aware of Joe Paterno, and I, I think I had gone to only one Penn State football game in my life. It was at the Old Veteran Stadium in Philadelphia, and I was rooting for Temple. So, I mean, it was not like I was you know, looking for a way to vindicate Penn State or Joe Paterno, my instincts were just telling me this story is ridiculous. I mean, there's no there's no way that Joe Paterno was told by an assistant coach or a graduate assistant at the time by the name of Mike McQuarrie that, uh, that he saw Jerry Sadusky raping a 10-year-old boy in a Penn State shower and that Penn State did nothing about it, uh, you know, passed it up the food chain. When you say it out loud like that, it, it, does, it does sound so absurd. It's an absurdity. I mean, and, and by the way, you know, I, I was, you know, your original question was, so why you? I don't believe in fate, Mark, but I do believe that nobody has, as a persona and a life experience that was better built for taking on this case than me. I mean, uh, I, I was well aware of Penn State, having lived in Pennsylvania, but was not a fan, which was key. A fan of Penn State could never have gotten to the truth of this case for reasons I'll explain later. Um, but I had also coached football at uh, the high school level in two different states. I had covered college and pro football as a sportscaster. I knew the culture of football. I knew the nature of the locker room. I, I knew the nature of the sport of college football. 
I also knew the news media exceedingly well, both the sports and the the news media. Um, I I had grown up Catholic, which I think helped in in a lot of ways because I think one of the major reasons why this story got blown is that it broke just after the Catholic Church scandal had hit nationally and especially in Pennsylvania, and the news media thought, "Aha." We've seen this movie before. The casting is perfect. Joe Paterno is the Pope. The administrators of the Catholic Cardinals look, you know, in the cover-up. Jerry Sandusky is a Catholic priest uh, who is the, the child sex predator. The Penn State fans are the Catholic parishioners looking the other way to protect their, their cherished institution of college football. This felt like we'd seen a movie already. And in the lazy mind of a sports media or a news media person, this all fits. So therefore, we don't need to worry about the details. We've already seen this story before, and we really like this one. Uh, And it's even better that it's Penn State football than the Catholic Church, because this is a much better target, and it's more relevant, and it, and it, it really fits a lot of our prior biases well, I think being Catholic and having grown up in Catholic school and understanding that Catholic church scandal also helped me understand what was going on here and what wasn't going on as I got deeper and deeper involved in it. And also, I think the key part is that I'm someone who doesn't care about popularity. I, I really don't care at all about people liking me. I have asbestos skin. I have been criticized my entire life and career many, many times. In the vast majority of cases, I have been vindicated ultimately, although I can tell you that ultimate vindication is of very value in today's society. (laughs) You're much better off, uh, you know, taking the popular side if you're worried about your career and, and, uh, you know, the happiness of your life, which is why most people do that in the media. Most people glom on the popular side because it's, it's very well known that popularity is the coin of the realm now. Truth is not the coin of the realm when it comes to the news media. And and I'm a truth guy and I'm a logic guy. And this story made no logical sense from the beginning. And as I got deeper and deeper and deeper into it, I realized that it wasn't just the Joe Paterno Penn State cover-up, which made no sense. It was all of it. And then, believe it or not, as insane as it sounds to someone who has not followed the story, Jerry Sandusky is not just innocent of the charges against him. He is clearly innocent of the charges against him. It's not even close. That's maybe the most astonishing part of this. I don't lose a second of sleep in being the person who became most publicly associated with, although I'm not the only one. I mean, I, I, there are other prominent people who have joined me in this fight, authors and commentators and even a federal uh, investigator who investigated the case for the federal government, um, you know, other reporters. But I'm, I'm obviously the most outspoken and the most prominent, and I don't lose an, a second of sleep about it because I know I'm right, and it's not close.
And I have to imagine that that thick skin maybe is maybe the, the real key there because I got to think, especially sticking your neck out on something like this, where you're essentially declaring the innocence of someone that the majority of people that heard about this case completely assume is absolutely a child molester based on nothing they've researched, but based on just the images they've seen on TV and what they presume to be the story, just like the entire news media uh, presumed it to be the story. So I'm curious, as you were going into this, you, you didn't go, you went in somewhat maybe assuming Sandusky's guilt as well. What was your first Correct. indicator where you real where you realized, okay, I already knew Joe was innocent, but what was your first indicator that Sandusky himself was p- at least potentially not actually responsible for this? I'm glad you mentioned that I went into this presuming that Jerry Sandusky was guilty. Now, uh, you know, I, I actually went back eventually and because I was writing, I think, for Bleacher Report occasionally at the time. And um, a few weeks after this story broke, I did write something that said, you know, it's possible Sandusky isn't quite as guilty as we think because, um, you know, the the grand jury presentment, which the media accepted as, you know, biblical and it's but gospel truth, um, had some major holes in it. And I, but I, I even then I was still accepting the idea. Okay, he must be a a child molester. He must be a pedophile. Maybe some of these cases are exaggerated. Maybe you know, is it possible somebody is trying to glong on for uh, a financial settlement? I mean, I, I'm, I was open to that possibility. But in the essence, in the essence, I thought this must be basically true. It must be basically true that this is what Sandusky is. It's just that the Penn State element of this made no sense. And there was no evidence. See, things that don't make sense happen all the time. You know, O.J. Simpson killed two people. Uh, that doesn't make any damn sense. But there's a mountain of evidence that that he did that. Um, and and so, you know, things can happen that are weird and nonsensical, but they come with evidence. And in this case, there was no evidence, even from the beginning. And as I got deeper and deeper into it, not only was there no evidence of the cover-up, there was no evidence of Jerry Sandusky's crime. And let's be clear. This was a unique situation. The cover-up and the crime were so tied together in both the media narrative as well as the prosecution's case. I mean, the same prosecuting team indicted the three administrators that, in, that indicted Jerry Sandusky. So it, it's I've used the analogy, and one of Jerry Sandusky's attorneys eventually ended up using this uh, himself. I've used the analogy of, okay, it's this case is a lot like believing in Santa Claus and Jerry Sandusky is Santa Claus, this dark Santa Claus, right? But if you don't believe in the cover up, you don't believe in elves that make toys all year long and you don't believe in reindeer that can fly. That's the cover up, but somehow you're still believing that there's Santa Claus. Well, how, <laughs> how does Santa Claus pull this off without the elves making the toys and the reindeer that can fly? So you have to accept the whole package. And so inherently, in a rational world, once the cover-up is destroyed, and I've had fights with Bob Costas about this. Um, you know, he and I communicate quite a bit to this day. He's the person whose interview is most associated with Jerry Sandusky's guilt, which is, you know, I, yeah. I think we'll talk about eventually because it's a fascinating chapter in this whole thing. But um, I, I'm trying to convince Bob, that because Bob doesn't believe even the cover-up. Well, if you don't believe in the cover-up, you got to have at least very serious concerns 
about the case itself against Sandusky, but to more directly answer your question, um, I had started to have suspicions. Um, right from the beginning, I thought, okay, this is, are we sure that this is true? Some of this seems odd. A lot of, one of the major misconceptions is that when the, the story breaks and the grand jury indicts, there are only two accusers that are, are alleging that Jerry Sandusky had clear sex acts with them. And I'm thinking, well, these others, the other six, you know, the allegations, two of them don't even have victims associated with them. And the other four are so vague that they could theoretically be exaggerated or they could be a, a miscommunication or misunderstanding, or they could be someone putting their toe in the water of an accusation while still being able to pull it back if it doesn't work out. I mean, so I had questions, but I think the first moment that I got that my hair stood on end, that I was like, oh my God, he, he's almost certainly innocent. And this happened actually after his conviction was when the former stepdad of victim number one, Aaron Fisher, victim number one is everything in this case because he was the only accuser for two full years of an investigation before everything changed. So for two years, Aaron Fisher is the only accuser. And after Jerry Sandusky is convicted, his former stepfather gets arrested and pleads guilty on a hundred counts of child sexual molestation and including against his own children. And I'm like, oh my God, that's what happened here. It was the stepfather who abused Aaron Fisher. And then that abuse was then transferred onto a far more lucrative, uh, 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 in this case, in my view, victim, because it didn't, it wasn't actually a perpetrator on to Jerry Sandusky because Jerry's, and this is in Aaron Fisher's own book. I mean, I have actually given out copies of Aaron Fisher's book at press conferences in front of the courthouse to the news media saying, read Aaron Fisher's book. It proves Jerry Sandusky innocent if you look at it in a rational fashion. But even in Jerry Sandusky's book, Eric Daniels, this former stepfather for Aaron Fisher, is referenced as the person for whom Jerry Sandusky basically took over as Aaron Fisher's mentor. So are you saying there, there are stories in that book that now when you look back, they just basically replaced the stepdad with Jerry Sandusky in those same stories about what happened? That's what, that's what I believe is, is the essence of what happened. I believe that that is why Aaron Fisher was believable as a victim of child sex abuse. And by the way, I'm not, this is just not a theory on my part. I have an interview in our podcast with the benefit of hindsight. I have multiple interviews with Aaron Fisher's former wife. Aaron Fisher's former wife tells me that Aaron told her he was abused by the stepdad. She has heard Aaron Fisher's mom talking about how Aaron was abused by the stepdad and never heard anything from Aaron talking about being abused by Jerry Sandusky. Never. That's his ex-wife. And um, and she does so in a way she is not trying to you know, get uh, you know some sort of retribution against Aaron. She's very hesitant to talk to me. It's unbelievable that she's even spoke 
shocking to me because she, when she was married to Aaron, she and Aaron hated my guts. I mean, Aaron Fisher threatened my life, threatened to run me over with a truck. Uh, we have photographs of the two of them on a hotel bed bathed in cash to mock me. Uh, Aaron Fisher giving the middle finger in one of these photographs while bathing. Was that in actually, cash. I've seen that photo. Was that actually directed at you, that, that middle finger? It appears to have been directed at me. Um, uh, there's only explanation that makes any sense. This was a picture posted on Facebook of, of the number one accuser in this case, bathing in cash, you know, um, you know, like a movie where um, he's basically saying, screw you. Uh, I won here because I'm rich now. And his, and his wife at the time did the same thing. This was all as an, an attempt to mock me. And, um, and so, I, you know, this, and I, I don't want to overemphasize the Eric Daniels aspect, but that was the moment that I'm like, oh my God, I can see a direct path here, how this could have easily happened. Because once that first accuser gets believed by the right people, and then you get this witness named Mike McQuery, whose story gets manipulated 10 years later. Now, now prosecutors who have been desperate after over two years of getting nowhere, now they have the hook and the bait to go elsewhere for accusers. They have Aaron Fisher, the victim, Mike McQuery, the witness, and they have a list of now adults who used to be at-risk kids who were part of Jerry Sandusky's Second Mile Charity, and they can go fishing. And these are all guys, by the way, it was a charity for both boys and girls, but they're only focused on guys because they somehow got the idea that Jerry Sandusky, who's never had a homosexual affair with anybody, who's been married his whole life to Dottie Sandusky, who doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, uh, doesn't give off any sexual vibes either. I mean, he's one of the most asexual people I've ever met in my life, that somehow he was obsessed with sex acts with boys with no evidence of this. So they go to men. They go to this list of hundreds of men, almost all of whom have had trauma in their life, whether it was real sex abuse, drug abuse, uh, you know, unemployment, divorce. I mean, these are, this is, this is rural middle Pennsylvania. This is the capital of white trash to be frank about it in the United States of America. And you go fishing and you guess what happens? It's not shocking that when you interview hundreds and hundreds of people with this hook in the bait, Aaron Fisher and Mike McQuery, you're going to find a few guys, not many, incredibly small number, in my opinion, given the number of people they interviewed. You're going to find a few that go, hmm, this could Maybe lead to somewhere. Did happen to me? Yeah, this this could have this could be good for me. This especially when they have lawyers whispering in their ears that, hmm, you know what? Maybe. Maybe something did happen. I'm not sure. I kind of have a vague recollection. I'm going to put my toe in the water, see where it goes. And if it goes someplace and now, and I get all of a sudden get the wind at my back and, uh, and it turns out it might be good for me. I, I can certainly, I can have my memory refreshed and all of a sudden I can remember things that, um, I couldn't previously remember because obviously I had PTSD or a repressed memories, which is a completely bull crap concept. And then once the media, see, once the media buys in on this, Mark, it's all over because now these accusers have a hurricane wind at their back. And once Penn state 
fires Joe Paterno and Graham Spanier, they can't go back. They can't fire Joe Paterno days before his final home football game and fire Graham Spanier and then later go, oops. <laughs> Especially after Joe Paterno essentially dies because of it. I mean, I would say, I think that right. it was the, the, I mean, he lost his will after right. that, I think. And, and, you know, so what are you going to say? Oops, my bad. Yeah. So not only do they fire Joe Paterno, not only do they fire Joe Paterno and fire Graham Spanier, a couple months later, Joe Paterno dies. And really that was the end of any hope for Jerry Sandusky to get a fair trial, because imagine this. So less than seven months after this massive fire explodes and Less than five months after Joe Paterno dies because of it, Jerry Sandusky tries to have a trial in in the state college area where he's not just perceived as uh, you know the, a horrible a pedophile. He's the pedophile that killed Santa Claus because you know right. Joe Paterno was a revered hero, and and so there's no chance of him getting a fair trial. I mean this. The in all seriousness, the Salem witch trials were could not have been worse. Could not have been. I mean this sincerely. They could not have been worse than Jerry Sandusky's trial, uh, with no continuances. Uh, it was horrendous in every possible way. the The media firestorm had not even subsided by the time the trial occurred, and there was no chance of Jerry Sandusky getting a fair trial. It, it, in such a short period of time with the media coverage the way that it was and which the in which the community and the other unique element of this mark which is so important this was not a normal case where you know someone is just accused of committing a crime the part of element the a, a big part of the element of this crime was the community of Penn State and State College was being accused of having enabled these crimes so what does the jury pool want to do? The jury pool wants to prove to the world that we're we are not enabling this. We are not, uh, you know, uh, pro Penn State football fans that are going to look the other way. We're going to do everything we possibly can to punish the hell out of Jerry Sandusky to prove to the world that we're not a bunch of pedophiles here. And so it was a perfect storm of of bullcrap basically and um and the trial was a joke it was an embarrassment and if it ever got reviewed i believe in a federal court by a decent judge who was not elected unlike the judges in pennsylvania a federal judge would be horrified by what transpired by the way even if jerry sandusky was guilty they would be horrified by the due process due lack of due process aspect of of the trial but he is innocent and unfortunately, the system is not just not set up to handle an injustice like this. If this was if he was accused of murder, then, um, you know, there would actually be evidence and there would be a dead body, obviously. Um, in this case, there are no bodies. There's no even evidence of a crime. You're basically shooting at ghosts and all of the accusers have been paid off almost into perpetuity by Penn State, who is invested in pleading guilty to all this, especially after they fire Joe Paterno and Graham Spanier. And so all of the accusers are very, very much invested in continuing this dark fairy tale of a story that's not based in truth or logic or evidence. All right, I want to go back to, I, I think what a lot of people who might be hearing this for the first time might be thinking is, okay, so 
where did this initial grand jury investigation originate? Why did that even exist in the first place? If we can even just assume that everybody sort of after those maybe first one or two were jumping on and trying to get on the bandwagon, uh, how did that first accusation that even started the investigation that was leaked, which led to the whole media narrative, uh, how did that start in the first place? That happened because Aaron Fisher, who was very close to Jerry Sandusky at the time, who, by the way, was a teenager at this time, an athlete, a, a wrestler, and a track star. I mean, so this was not a meek little kid. The prosecution tried to put out pictures, you know, showing him as a little boy. There, there are no little boys in this story, Mark. Okay, that's that, I think that's important for people to understand. Uh, you know, the, the prosecution team itself, which was led by two men, I think they even knew that they had a problem with the ages involved here. because. Any uh, boy knows that uh, once you hit 12, at least 13, everything changes uh, uh, with regard to your physical strength, your uh, sexuality, your awareness of sexuality, everything. And so they were desperate to try to keep these ages under 12. Uh, And uh, for instance, when you read Aaron Fisher's testimony at trial, He's like in suspended animation. He's in a he's eleven year old for like three years. I mean, they they, they it's a it's remarkable how they how they do this. Um, and and so that's one of the many 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 problems with the prosecution. But Aaron Fisher, uh, essentially, and we have a we have a remarkable witness who is on our podcast, and you can go to YouTube and and you can and can find this. We have an interview with his neighbor, with Aaron Fisher's neighbor. Now, this is welfare housing. So when I say neighbor, I mean, they're basically in this same small house. I mean, they're they're separated by something barely more than cardboard. All right. And so they, they know everything that's going on. And the neighbor literally witnessed Aaron Fisher making the first semblance of a claim against Jerry Sandusky to his mother. And the neighbor comes away convinced immediately that this story is bullshit, <laughs> that Aaron Fisher is trying to manipulate his mother into not forcing him to go out with Jerry Sandusky because Aaron Fisher at this point, I believe he was 15 years old. Aaron Fisher had been dating a lot of girls, tons of girls by his admission. I don't know if he's telling truth or not, but he his claims of sexual prowess are off the charts uh, at this point, according to his friends, as a 15-year-old. And his mom wants to go out drinking. And she has essentially been able to go schedule this night of drinking because she's got Jerry Sandusky as a babysitter for her teenage kid. And Aaron doesn't want to hang out with Jerry because that's boring as hell. You're going to go get soda pop and, you know, listen to a jukebox or something. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's a night with Jerry Sandusky. Aaron Fisher has no interest in that at the age of, of almost 16. And uh, and so he makes this claim to his mom that Jerry makes me feel uncomfortable. That's what he said. That's what the, 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 the neighbor witnessed. And uh, he sees Aaron Fisher and his mom go into the house. They have a fairly short conversation. And then the mom, who's a real piece of work in all this, Dawn Fisher, although she has many last names because she's been married and divorced numerous times, keeping track of the family tree in this case is almost impossible. Uh, but you know, but for that's another story for another day. So 
um, she comes out of the house smoking a cigarette. And the first thing she says to the neighbor is, I'm going to own that motherfucker's house. First thing she says. That's after that first conversation. After that first conversation, I'm going, meaning to Jerry Sandusky, I'm going to own that motherfucker's house. And, um, and that's how this whole thing begins. Now, the mom does not go to the police. Does not go to the police. She goes to the high school where Aaron Fisher is attending, where Jerry Sandusky is a volunteer assistant football coach. Now, this is, to me, maybe there's so many underrated facts in this whole thing, but the entire essence of the media and the prosecution's narrative here is that Jerry Sandusky, as a revered former Penn State assistant football coach, had such power over these teenage boys that they were willing to engage as heterosexuals in homosexual sex acts on numerous occasions while never telling anybody about it and just going along with it because, my God, you can't, you can't go against Jerry Sandusky. He's a god around here. Jerry Sandusky, by this point, was not a god. He was a volunteer assistant football coach at, at Aaron Fisher's high school a guy who was running a charity, a goofy dude who didn't even drive a nice car. Aaron Fisher had no fear or respect for Jerry Sandusky at all. He was a pain in the ass in his life because Jerry Sandusky was concerned about Aaron Fisher's grades. And Aaron Fisher, all he wanted to do was get laid. And, and Jerry Sandusky was a hindrance to that. And so what I believe happened here is, and the, by the way, the high school and they got enormous criticism for this. The high school told Aaron and his mom, are you sure this really happened? Are you sure you want to pursue this? Now, this got portrayed at, it later as part of the cover-up, that the high school is covering right, up right. for Jerry Sandusky. No, the high school knows Aaron Fisher, and he's a storyteller already. They know Jerry Sandusky. They know this is ridiculous. And they're going, really? By the way, nobody at the high school ever gets fired. The principal doesn't get fired. The assistant principal, who's the football coach, gets promoted to being principal after this whole scandal happens, and then later gets inducted into the high school's Hall of Fame. Now, if if the high school had any idea <laughs> or any semblance of a concept that the high school had somehow, and these people had enabled Aaron Fisher's abuse, do you think any of that would have happened? Not a chance in the world. By the way, I've been to that high school. I have been in the room with that assistant principal turned principal who was the football coach. I've looked him eye to eye, and I've told him Jerry Sandusky is innocent, and I know he knew I was telling the truth. And I, I detail that meeting in our podcast with the benefit of hindsight. They all knew at the school that Aaron Fisher was telling a lie, but it all gets portrayed in in retrospect, hindsight 2020 is somehow this is part of the cover-up that they everyone was protecting Jerry Sandusky. Bullshit. Aaron Fisher was lying. Everybody knew it. The story made no sense. And it was a therapist by the name of Mike Gillum. So Aaron, so the high school basically says, this is crazy. So then they take Aaron Fisher to Mike Gillum, this crackpot therapist who uh, ends up being a co-author of Aaron Fisher's book after this whole story breaks. Gillum would end up losing his state license because it's completely inappropriate and unprofessional for a therapist to be co-writing the book uh, of, a, of a patient. 
uh, in this situation. That sounds like some viol- professional right, violation right. So, to me. So yeah. 100% a violation of, of professional ethics. This guy, it's very clear that Gillum is, is coercing a story out of Aaron Fisher. And he can't do it. It takes him forever to get Aaron Fisher to eventually answer uh, the question, well, did Jerry Sineski abuse you with a very simple yes? And and once Gillum gets that yes, then Gillum goes and facilitates investigation by authorities. There's you know protective services and Aaron gets interviewed there. And then slowly but surely it works itself uh, up the food chain to the attorney general's office. And that's when a criminal investigation gets started into Jerry Sandusky. And that criminal investigation goes nowhere for two years, literally nowhere. They're about to close the investigation. And then all of a sudden into their laps falls this bizarre, I believe nonsensical story involving Mike McQueary uh, a then graduate assistant at Penn State, allegedly witnessing Jerry Sandusky 10 years prior having uh, committed some sort of heinous sex act against what he thought to be a 10-year-old boy in a Penn State shower, and he told Joe Paterno about it the next day. And it is that episode, Mark, that is the essence of this entire case, and I have spent most of the last 12 years uh, looking into that, and I, I now... I'm positive it didn't happen, and I have actually. I'm the only one that has come up with an alternative scenario and narrative to explain what really did happen. And my narrative makes way more sense and is way more consistent with the known facts than the media fairy tale. But it's really the McQuery story that is is at the center of all this because without the McQuery story. There's no Joe Paterno angle. There's no Penn State angle. There's no media firestorm. There's no rush to judgment. There, if this even, I, I don't even think this ends up in an arrest of Jerry Sandusky. I really don't. But if it did, he would have a trial under the circumstances where he would at least have a chance to show his innocence. And I believe that the facts would have won out and that he would have been easily acquitted, assuming it wasn't thrown out well before then. Gotcha. So it's initially a non-public investigation that is going on for two years because it's not really going anywhere because it's just this story from this kid, Aaron Fisher. And then the fuel, I guess, for them to say, look, no, we've got this other story now. We've got this guy from Penn State who says he saw something 10 years ago. Now we've got a case. And then that, I think somewhere around there is when that whole story leaked out. And then that's what what led to the national firestorm. How did that leak out, by the way? Okay. So once I've I've already alluded to the, once you get Aaron Fisher and you get McQuarrie, you have the the bait and the you know the hook. Um, it was in March, late March of 2011, when the the grand jury investigation leaks out into the local newspaper via report by a woman by the name of Sarah Gannum, who at the time was barely 24 years old. I, I mean, I, and she had just turned 24, I think. She was in the 23, 24 years old category. She was a former Penn State student. She didn't know who Jerry Sandusky was. She obviously had very, very, very little experience in anything. I remember back when I was a television sportscaster, uh, uh, the NBC affiliate in Steubenville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia. I was 24 years old, and I can't believe, in retrospect, they put me on the air because I didn't know I didn't know crap about crap. And I went to Georgetown University. Uh, by her own admission, Sarah Gannon was a poor student at Penn State. 
and so basically what happened here, in my view, to cut it to the quick, Mark, is that a desperate prosecution with a case going nowhere leaked what they had to a very ambitious, ambitious and naive reporter by the name of Sarah Gannon, who then did their bidding for them because their entire philosophy of the case, their entire theory of the case was, well, we can't find any corroborating witnesses. But that's not because Jerry Sandusky is innocent. It's because there's this culture of silence and corruption and cover-up, and everyone's afraid. And if we can break that, if we can shatter that, if we can let people know that there's an investigation going on, then we're going to get bombarded with corroborating witnesses with really good stories who are way better than Aaron Fisher because they had become disenchanted with Aaron Fisher. Aaron Fisher tried to testify to the grand jury on two different occasions and failed. He started crying. He couldn't answer questions. Finally, he read his statement with his therapist, Mike Gillum, in the room with him. I'm sure Mike Gillum wrote the statement for him. I mean, this is unbelievable. This is in a grand jury. By the way, that grand jury that heard Aaron Fisher's testimony never indicted Jerry Sandusky because they didn't believe Aaron Fisher. But, but the entire prosecution philosophy here was if we get this into the pub, all of a sudden we're going to get a mass number of new witnesses, new accusers, and the case is all of a sudden going to become very strong. And so they used Sarah Gannon to do that, and they played her like a fiddle. And interestingly, Mark, they really didn't get very much from that article. They got they got one new accuser that claimed actual sex acts with Jerry Sandusky, and that was under incredibly, almost unbelievably suspicious circumstances lacking credibility because this person had a civil attorney with them. No reason why they would have a plaintiff's attorney with them. I mean, they're not, a, they're not a target of the investigation. They're an, an alleged accuser of Jerry Sandusky. And as they were being interviewed by investigators, this person would, would end up being victim number four, so-called victim number four. He's not telling them about a sex act. And the investigators are frustrated and the attorney, his plaintiff's attorney, who would end up making many millions of dollars from this case, is also frustrated. So what do they do? The lawyer says the investigators, this is all on, this is all on record. This is all on tape. The lawyer says to the investigators, hey, can we, can we stop taping for a minute? And they, they think they've turned off the recorder, but they didn't. So this is all on recording that was played at Jerry Sandusky's trial. The media thought this was, this was funny when in fact it was incredible evidence of innocence. So the lawyer says to the investigators outside the earshot of, of his client, he says, Hey, um, can we, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Can we lie to him and tell him that we have other accusers claiming sex acts so that he'll, you know, be feel more comfortable telling the truth here. And the investigators say to the lawyer, oh, sure. Yeah, we do that all the time. No problem. This is all on tape. That's true in the legal sense that they can actually lie yes. and get people to say things. Yes, you, you are allowed as a, as, a, as a law enforcement official, you are allowed to lie to someone you're interrogating, uh, you know, whether it's, a, in this case, it was an alleged accuser, not a, not a, a, a you know, a, a alleged 
criminal. You know, so this is an unusual set of circumstances. You could tell a robbery suspect, we have these three witnesses, they all saw you, even if it's not true, and hopefully right. to get them to just admit it, essentially, kind of thing. And, and under those circumstances, Mark, that at least makes some sense. But here you don't right. have an alleged criminal, you have an alleged accuser. And what they're unwittingly doing, at least I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, they're unwittingly doing this, is what they do is they come back and they said they, they lie to him about what they have. And then all of a sudden, victim four comes forward with this story of blatant sex abuse, clear sex acts. Well, what's happening is this. Here's what really happened. Victim number four doesn't, he wasn't accused, he wasn't abused by Jerry Sandusky. And he doesn't even really believe that Jerry Sandusky could be an abuser because he knows Jerry Sandusky very well. But if he's convinced that other people are saying it, that it's real, one, he might think, holy cow, I didn't really know Jerry Sandusky. This guy's a monster. I need to help put him behind bars. That's the, that's the you know, giving the benefit of the doubt scenario. But then he's also thinking, well, if he's a, an abuser, and I knew Jerry Sandusky very, very well. This guy had been on the cover of the local newspaper with Jerry Sandusky on the day he announced his retirement. So this guy was very, very very tied to Jerry Sandusky. If Jerry Sandusky is an abuser, and I've got this plaintiff's attorney right next to me telling me, this could be very, very good for us because you've got Penn State and, and the Second Mile Charity potentially on the hook here for a lot of money. So simultaneously, by lying to him, you're convincing him because these are trusted people. They're investigators on behalf of the Attorney General's office and his lawyer. Trusted people are telling him, one, no, 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 you don't get it. Jerry is a serial child abuser, sex abuser. And um, and also, uh, because of that, uh, you know, there's, there's some things that could be very good for you here. Interestingly, this accuser, victim number four, would end up having the same therapist as, you guessed it, victim number one, Aaron Fisher. And in that book I referenced- What are the odds? Uh, yeah, I know, what are the odds? In, in the book I referenced, this is one of the key scenes of why I say people should read Aaron Fisher's book. Of course, you need to have, you need to listen to the, with the benefit of hindsight, to have the factual background to understand all this. In that book, Mike Gillum, the therapist, describes a scene right outside of Jerry Sandusky's trial where what he describes is one of the other accusers. And it has to be victim number four because it's his client. How else would he be? there in a situation to witness it, why would they be comfortable with him being able to witness what was being said? And why would he put it in his book? I mean, also, by the way, if you look at the timing of the of the testimony, this all fits perfectly. What really happened here is, so victim number four goes to Aaron Fisher outside the courtroom and basically says, hey, Aaron, this really did happen to you, right? And Aaron goes, yeah, 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 yeah. What's happening there is, Number four, his name was Brett, is still not totally believing that Jerry is a child molester. And he doesn't want to be the one who hangs Jerry, his friend, if he's not really guilty. He also doesn't want to be hung out to dry himself because he's going to be the first person on the stand. If he tells the story and let's say Aaron Fisher backs out, then he's going to be the one all by himself. So what's happening here is Victim number four doesn't really believe his own story. He's looking for Aaron Fisher to back him up. And 
And those are the only two, Aaron Fisher and Victor number four, who at the time of Jerry Sandusky's arrest were claiming to prosecutors that Jerry Sandusky had very clearly, with clear sex acts, sexually abused them. And it was victim number four who the prosecutors would later claim in an interview with HBO, Armin Kintayan, was their star witness, which is hilarious, but also very telling, because you can't have a star witness in this case other than victim number one. If victim number one is not your star witness, there's an inherent problem with your case because he's the only accuser for two years. Everything flows from Aaron Fisher. If Aaron Fisher is bullcrap, then everything that flows from that is bullcrap. And I can tell you, Aaron Fisher is bullcrap. And if you don't believe me, just read his own book because the whole thing is ridiculous. It makes no sense. And if you know anything about his story, and if you listen to with the benefit of hindsight, it's very obvious that Aaron Fisher is not telling the truth. And it's very obvious that Mike McQuarrie did not witness a sexual assault in a, in a Penn State shower. Did not happen. And and those two things are the are the really the the whole that's the whole essence of the case. Aaron Fisher and and Mike McQuarrie are all that 99% of the public and the news media know about this case. And the, the whole case is is not built. These two pillars of the case that we were told were built on concrete. They were built on sand. And the whole thing falls apart under any semblance of scrutiny. All right. So let's go back to that McCreary uh, accusation or whatever it was originally that became an accusation later on. Because uh, that's one thing that a lot of people will always point to. If you bring this up, they'll say, well, what about this thing in the shower with this kid? And they they assume that that's what was happening is that he reported a possible sexual incident of some kind that he saw with Jerry Sandusky or that he sort of saw or heard. It's very unclear because, as you know, the story has changed a few times. But uh, what what is the explanation? You said you had the explanation for that. So what is the explanation of what actually happened there and how that story became what it became? All right, I'm going to tell you what the prosecution's version of that story is, and then I'm going to tell you what really happened. And this is the Reader's Digest version, but if you go to With the Benefit of Hindsight podcast, we, we deal with this extensively in episode number one. And to me, it's all about the dates. The dates here tell the whole story. It's not really about sex abuse. The dates are all you really need to know. But here's the version of the prosecution, the, the prosecution told. The prosecution in November of 2011 said that um, on March 1st of 2001, Mike McQuarrie had witnessed a young boy he thought to be about 10 years old being raped in a Penn State shower. And that the next day, he went to Joe, next morning, he went to Joe Paterno and he told him what he saw. Now, that right there is an extraordinary story. Okay, so you witnessed a young boy being raped by a local legend, Jerry Sandusky. You don't stop him. You don't beat Jerry Sandusky up. You don't save the kid from what's going on, right? You make no effort to identify the kid. You, you, that is pretty odd. Oh, there's a kid getting raped. Huh? I'll go tell. I'll go tell my football coach. I guess tomorrow. Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. I'm going to tell my football coach. Okay. So, and, and a lot of people have had the same reaction you just did, but they misinterpreted it. They, and to me, that's the first sign that this didn't really happen because that's not 
That is not a human reaction. Mike McQuarrie is a six foot four, 235 pound former quarterback at Penn State in his mid to late 20s. Jerry Sadusky is an older guy uh, who's naked. I mean, McQuarrie could beat the living crap out of him with no problem. It could save the kid from what's happening. That's what would occur in the real world. All right. But I, I don't want to get sidetracked. So this is so this the story goes that he tells Paterno about it the next morning. Paterno then goes to the Penn State administrators. The administrators bring McQuarrie in. They interview him. And according to the administrators, Mike says nothing about this being a sex act. This is horsing around in the shower and that Mike is concerned about what he saw and that somebody ought to talk to Jerry about it. They talk to Jerry about it. Jerry denies it. At first, he doesn't even understand what they're talking about. And uh, and eventually, Jerry has very little repercussions. I mean, he, apparently, he was told not to bring kids back into the shower. He may have lost his the keys to the shower area. But I mean, Penn State tells him, "Knock it off." Basically, Jerry, this this is this is dumb. What you're doing, uh, but it doesn't go to police. Uh, at least not that we know of. And uh, although the the campus police was aware of it, um, but there there's a there's an investigation. But nothing happens to Jerry. There's no charges. There's there's no major ramifications. And that was back in, according to the prosecution, 2002. All right, March 1st, 2002. And then we get closer to trial. So when Joe Paterno dies, he thinks that the date that changed his whole life and destroyed his career was March 1st, 2002. But then by the time we get to trial, the prosecution very sheepishly and very quietly announces, oh, yeah, you remember remember when we told you that that whole McQuarrie thing happened on March 1st of 2002? Yeah, <laughs> funny thing about that. Yeah, um, we got some emails that show when that meeting between McQuarrie and Paterno happened. And <laughs> imagine this, it didn't happen in 2002. Yeah, it didn't happen in March. Yeah, no, it happened in February of 2001. Uh, yeah, we, we, because we have emails showing that the meeting between McQuarrie and Paterno occurred on February 10th of 2001. Yeah, so, you know, not a big deal, folks. Just We just want to put it out there that there's been a clerical error. And there, there's nothing significant about this. Now, as if it were a, a typo or, right. or something. And Mark, that was a moment for me. I'm like, oh, my God. And that back when I was still on the, the whole issue of the cover-up, I'm like, we're going to put all of this, all of this is on the word of a guy who didn't get the date, the month of the year, correct on this? I mean, if this really happened, this is an unforgettable situation. This is a situation that you would, it, you, it would be like 9-11. It would, that, that's what it would be like. And by the way, interestingly, this first date is after 9-11. The second date is before 9-11. How do you mess that up if this is that big of a moment right. in your if in your life you would know if it occurred before 9-11 or after 9-11, because that was that that was such a big deal in everyone's life back then. And so that made no sense to me. I'm like, my hair is on fire. There is no way this happened the way we're being told if he didn't get the date, the month, and the year right. Well, incredibly long story short, this was both my greatest revelation of the entire case as well as my biggest screw up. Because I should have figured out what really happened a hell of a lot faster than I did. Because when I interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison the first of two times, 
I was still convinced he was a pedophile of some level. And, but I was positive of one thing. If there was one thing I was positive of, positive of, it was that Jerry Sandusky knew that that second date, February 9th, 2001, could not be right. He knew it. He knew it in his bones. And I'm like, okay. That's very interesting to me. I mean, he could still be a pedophile. Doesn't mean he's a pathological liar. How does he know that that's not right? And he explained to me that he had associated this event that occurred in the shower because he knew who he was with. He knew the kid he was with. It was like a surrogate son to him. He had associated that with two events in his life. The debut of his book, his autobiography, Jerry Sandusky's book, and Jerry Sandusky losing out on the head football coaching job at the University of Virginia. And those things didn't happen in February 9th of 2001. Also, he was positive that he would never have taken the kid in question, who was named Alan Myers, who was almost 14 years old at this time, he would never taken him out of school. And he thought that Alan had school on February 9th. And I even investigated that, Mark. I went to Alan Myers School, and I, and I got the secretary to find a calendar for Mar February 9th of 2001. And sure enough, they had school that day. And there, because he had remembered, Jerry had, that what had transpired was that they had traveled across the, the state of Pennsylvania together. And that Alan could not have had school that day. And that that night they had worked out and then taken a shower at the Penn State facilities. Well, again, incredibly long story short, I should have put this all together sooner. But the February 9th date, Jerry Sandusky is right. It cannot be February 9th, 2001. And we know this from so many different angles. Angle number one. Mike McQuarrie claimed emphatically that the night this occurred was a very quiet night on campus. In fact, the prosecution at the preliminary hearing had basically bragged about the fact that March 1st, 2002, that first date, that was the first day of spring break for Penn State. So the implication was, aha, bum, 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 Jerry knows no one's going to be around. He has the presumption of privacy where he can rape a 10 year old boy in a massive shower with no actual stalls, which doesn't even make any goddamn sense, but okay. That was their theory. Well, February 9th, Mark was anything but a quiet night on campus across the street from the lash building was a sold out rock concert that night sold out in the lash building itself. Penn State's hockey team back in 2001, they now have a fantastic facility because uh, the guy who owns the Buffalo Bills you know, loves hockey. And, uh, and I think he also owns the Sabres, or at least he used to. He built, he's a Penn State guy. He built a massive hockey facility at Penn State. That, that did not exist in 2001. They played their hockey games in essentially the same building that this alleged rape occurred, and the hockey team was playing a game that night at the exact same time when this allegedly occurred. Wow. So not well, only Terry was this, Sandusky's raping a kid, I guess. Right. So there's not not only is this not a quiet night on campus, this is quite literally the least quiet night you could ever have in this section of campus. Gary Schultz, one of the administrators who was 
uh, 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 charged and eventually uh, pled guilty in this case, who was totally innocent, and he was the vice president of administration, he told me not only was it not a, a quiet night on campus, Mike could not have found a parking space. There would have been, it would have been impossible for him to find a parking space to go into the last locker room that night. So there's no way it occurred on February 9th. So when did it occur? See, the reason why the prosecution needs it to be February 9th is because the meeting with Paterno is the morning of February 10th. We know that from emails. And if Mike didn't see what he allegedly saw or heard what he allegedly saw on the night of February 9th, there's too much time to go to Paterno for it to be a rape. Are you following me? There needs to be urgency. And the, and the most amount of time that a, natural, a normal human being would accept for there to be urgency is, okay, something happens on a Friday night. You don't want to bug the great Joe Paterno at night, but you do so the first thing the next morning, even though you don't go to police. That doesn't make sense. You go to your dad and your dad's friend, but okay. There's a lot of benefit of the doubt even there, but yeah. Right. Okay. We're giving all sorts of benefit of the doubt, but the, the right. normal person can't go beyond the next morning. You can't go beyond the next morning. So that means it has to be the night of February 9th. It has to be. Otherwise, this was not a rape. Well, it wasn't the night of February 9th for the reasons I just told you. I believe I have now put together when it really was. It was the night of December 29th, 2000, which was a Friday night in the middle of Christmas break the quietest night you're ever going to get on campus. And it was that night, was, which was the day Jerry Sandusky's book first comes out. He has a book signing in Washington, PA, which is on the other side of Pennsylvania. He drives after that book signing with Alan Myers, who's off from school because it's Christmas vacation. He drives across the state of Pennsylvania. They get to Penn State. They work out after a long drive. Then they take a shower. And at Mike McQuarrie having nothing to do that night because the Peach Bowl had just ended. It was college football bowl season. Penn State played uh, in no bowl game that year because they sucked. So Penn State season was over at Thanksgiving. Mike McQuarrie is bored out of his mind. The Peach Bowl ends almost at exactly the same time that it would have required Mike McQuarrie to leave his house after watching football all day and go over to the Lash Building. And that's when... I believe he at some level witnesses Jerry Sandusky taking a shower with a kid he considered to be his son named Alan Myers. McQuarrie maybe witnesses some rough housing or whatever. Jerry is a goofball, and this was common for him to do this kind of stuff. And Mike McQuarrie is uncomfortable about it. I don't have a problem with Mike McQuarrie being uncomfortable about it. But Mike McQuarrie, while he may have gone to his dad and his dad's friend immediately, I'm uncertain about that. He does not go to Joe Paterno the next day. He doesn't go to Joe Paterno the next week. He waits six weeks to go see Joe Paterno. And so you're wondering, well, John, why would he eventually go see Joe Paterno six weeks later? Because you know what did happen on February 9th, 2001? It wasn't seeing Jerry Sandusky in the shower with a boy that facilitated the meeting between Mike McQuarrie and Joe Paterno. It was February 9th, 2001, when Mike McQuarrie reads in the local newspaper. Remember, there's no Twitter at this time. News travels much more slowly. He reads in the local paper that morning on February 9th that Kenny Jackson has just left the Penn State coaching staff to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers, leaving open the wide receivers coaching job, which Mike McQuarrie as a graduate assistant desperately wanted. It was that opening on February 9th that facilitates Mike McQuarrie going, 
I need FaceTime with Joe Paterno. And, and in fact, Mike, I believe, concocts a story where when he calls Joe Paterno in the morning of February 10th, he has Joe Paterno, who was dead by this point, therefore Mike can say anything he wants, that he says Joe Paterno saying, if this is about a job, don't bother coming over. I don't have one for you. The reason why Mike concocts that story from Paterno, a story which is emphatically denied by Sue Paterno, who was there that day, she denied it out of the blue while I was in the, the Paterno kitchen. Uh, I mean, it couldn't could have been more emphatic. The reason why that happens is Mike is concocting this story, either consciously or subconsciously, to protect himself from the reality of that meeting. The reality of that meeting was much more about a job than it was about reporting Jerry Sandusky for having sexually assaulted a boy. Sue Paterno described that meeting, and she has a legendary memory by all accounts. She described that meeting between Mike McQuarrie and Joe Paterno, ironically, as Joe Paterno was getting out of the shower to get ready to go to an event in Pittsburgh. She described it as a three-minute meeting. Three minutes. They don't even sit down. You can't I feel tell, like a rape would take longer to talk about. Yeah, you, you can't tell Joe Paterno that you witnessed Jerry Sandusky raping a boy in the shower in three minutes. What you might be able to do in three minutes is, hey, coach, I, I got I've been meaning to tell you, I saw Jerry Sandusky in a shower with this kid recently. It really bugged me. Can can someone talk to him and just have him knock it off? And Paterno goes, Absolutely, Mike, I'll take care of it. That's a three-minute conversation. That's what happened. That's what the evidence shows. That's what Alan Myers' own testimony to investigators says. Alan Myers continually denied any allegation of abuse against Jerry Sandusky and was not a witness at trial. The prosecution did not call him at trial because they knew they didn't like his story. After the trial... Alan Myers collects his money from Penn State because his friend Jerry Sandusky is no longer useful to him. And he's got a lawyer telling him, why would you leave $8 million on the table when it's free? And so he goes and takes the money after his friend has been convicted. But Alan Myers' statements, and by the way, not just his statements, his actions, Alan Myers' actions in life make it abundantly clear he was never abused by Jerry Sandusky. He saw Jerry Sandusky as a father figure. And that he, in his own words, Mike McQuarrie is not telling the truth about what happened. But once the media buys into this narrative, it's all over. All right, John. Well, there's a couple things I want to touch on real quick before we see if we can have a little time to hop into a bonus segment here. But uh, one thing I know a lot of people are going to be thinking is, is in both versions of the story, including Jerry Sandusky's, everybody admits, and you even said, like, he was in the shower with a young boy. And I think to a lot of people, even that alone is going to set off red flags in their mind saying, well, hold on. Despite everything else you're saying, why is Jerry Sandusky taking showers with boys and why is that okay in the first place? So maybe you can address that. Sure, and that's absolutely the reaction of a lot a lot of people and I understand it. Now, I think it's based largely in ignorance. I mean, I'm not saying that it's a an ignorant response to go, well, that's weird or wrong or or troubling. I, I don't I don't I I don't even have any problem with what I think was Mike McQuarrie's reaction. I think he was trying to use it for his own selfish purposes. But um, to be uncomfortable about that is not inappropriate or wrong. I think the first thing you need to understand is some, there's some context here. Number one, Jerry Sandusky grew up in a rec home in a different era. 
and nudity was not forbidden. It was not unusual. People showered together. They, they swam without swimming trunks together. This was his experience. Number two, in a football uh, locker room, and this was there was testimony to this effect at Jerry Sandusky's trial. It is not unusual at all to have men walking around naked all the time and that there would be adolescent boys also there. That was not unusual. Jerry was not the only person that would bring kids into the locker room and then they would have a shower, partially because of the nature of these locker rooms. I, I think that the non-athlete may have a misunderstanding when they hear shower, right? I think when people hear shower, they must think of an enclosed area where you could get a, a smaller, younger person who you could physically overpower them, right? Into some sort of a, of a sex act. Um, that's not what this is. These are not stalls. This is a giant room with shower heads all over the place where, I mean, the logistics of it are almost absurd. It'd be almost the easiest place in the world to run away from, uh, especially when everybody's slipping around on a wet surface. I mean, it just, it's, it, if you, if you understand what the situation was, you go, Oh, okay, well this, this is not a dangerous circumstance. And, and to put some more meat on that idea, I have constantly said, and I should have said this sooner because I think this is very compelling if Jerry Sandusky really had a compulsion to have showers with boys so he could sexually abuse them, if that really happened, then why is it that in the entire trial of Jerry Sandusky with eight human accusers and, and two non-human allegations that, that didn't have victims attached to them, attached to them why, not, why in the trial of Jerry Sandusky, as well as the settlement documents at Penn State. Penn State pays $130 million to 36 accusers. I am one of the very few people that has seen all the documents because they got leaked to us. So I know all the stories of the 36 guys who got paid millions of dollars by Penn State. Why in all of that documentation, Mark, is there not one story of Jerry Sandusky asking or demanding a boy to take a shower with him at his home because at his home he has inherent privacy it is a confined area in a normal shower situation the reason there's two reasons why or at least two reasons why there are no stories of jerry sandusky having a shower with a kid at his home and that would be a bit more inappropriate as well right. than well, num a, a sports environment where everybody showers. Exactly. Number one, Jerry knew that would be absurd. That would be in inappropriate. You wouldn't do that because it's not the same environment. A Penn State shower in his mind, in Jerry Sanusky's mind, is semi-public. I mean, this is some. there's going to be people walking in and out all the time, not to mention that there's no actual stalls. So that's number one. But number two, the real reason why there are no stories of showers at Jerry Sandusky's house is that Penn State wasn't paying for stories of showers at Jerry Sandusky's house. They were paying big money for stories of showers on Penn State's campus. And guess what happens when you create a market with over $100 million where you want a particular story? This is going to be shocking to people. You're going to get that story. You're going to get people, especially when it's in one of the biggest news stories of the century. Everybody knows about a shower on Penn State's campus. 
all of a sudden, oh my God, yeah, I remember. That's what happened to me. I was in a Penn State shower and Jerry Sadowski right. abused me because that's- For $8 million, I was in a shower. Yes. For sure. That's what happens. And so to me, if this was really a sexual compulsion by Jerry Sandusky, there would be some stories of Jerry Sandusky saying, hey, kid, you've been in my basement you know, playing pinball and, and air hockey. Why don't we come up and have a shower together? <laughs> There's not one story like that that didn't happen because one, Jerry knew it would be inappropriate and two because jerry didn't have this compulsion it, was, it wasn't about abusing kids for sex he was he was just a very naive guy with boundary issues who found himself in a perfect storm of bullshit and didn't know how to deal with it and the media crucified him john one more thing i want to touch on just real quick because i think this is a pretty crucial aspect of the bigger picture as well um Maybe you can just quickly state a reason beyond all this, even if you think that your interpretation of the stories is nonsense and this and that, and you think that they're, the accusers are, are somehow credible. Besides all that, there is a pretty good reason that Jerry Sandusky could not actually physically be engaging in these acts that he's accused of. So could you maybe just briefly uh, state that and then we'll close up? Yeah, years after my investigation began, we finally got Jerry Sandusky's medical records. And... The medical records, in, in my opinion, um, make it impossible for Jerry Sandusky to be guilty, effectively impossible. Um, I, I'm not going to claim that he could not have even theoretically done these acts, but if he had done these acts, these two things would have been very apparent. The first is that Jerry Sandusky had incredibly low testosterone. He was undergoing testosterone therapy during the time period where most of these allegations occurred. I mean, he has, he was falling asleep at the wheel because he had literally no testosterone. And I mean, that's obviously a huge part of sexual function, regardless of whether it's in a heterosexual, homosexual, or pedophile direction. And so there's a great question as to when that he was even physically capable of this. Now he has claimed stupidly in my mind, and I'm not sure even accurately, that he was capable of erections and having sex with his wife. I, frankly, I'm not even convinced, having appeared on the Today Show with Dottie Sandusky in another interview with Matt Lauer, I'm not 100% sure Matt, Dottie Sandusky even knows what sex is. I mean, that's how naive she is and how how Christian she is. But okay, fine, whatever. But the the part of the medical records that to me is far more significant than even the lack of testosterone is that there is a line in there, and this is right in the heart of the time period of two of the major accusations. And this is there's no indication that this was a temporary situation. This was a lifelong situation. That Jerry Sandusky has, quote, virtually no testicular matter, unquote. Virtually no testicular matter. In layman's terms, he has no balls. He has no balls. Um, which is ironic because most of this case occurs because Penn State had no balls, but that was metaphorically and, and not uh, you know, physically. But the reality here is, and, and, and it's amazing to me, Mark, how few people, I shouldn't say few people, how, how a lot of people don't fully understand what I mean by the significance of no balls. I'm not just saying that, you know, anally raping a 16-year-old boy um, with no booze, no drugs, no payoffs is impossible in general for a heterosexual boy, uh, but really impossible when you have no testosterone and no balls from a physical standpoint. I'm saying that if it had happened, 
if Jerry Sandusky was really a serial child sex abuser, given the nature of the testimony, given the nature of the acts that were alleged, given the number of times that some of these accusations allegedly occurred, like, for instance, Aaron Fisher, victim number one, at trial, even though his timeline shifted all over the place in, in ways that were impossible, uh, he claimed that he had engaged with Jerry Sandusky a hundred times. So if any of this was true, Mark, somebody would have said, you know, by the way, um, so weird. Jerry has no, minor detail. Jerry has no balls. Uh, that would have been noticed by one, at least one. And not, not one accuser mentioned not anything one about one word that. at trial or in these settlement documents about Jerry Sandusky having no testicles. And I'm sorry if, if this had happened, not only would you know that, but that would be a golden ticket. That would be knowing that information yeah. would be worth yeah. 10 to $20 million at least if you had a good lawyer. If you pick and if you told that to a lawyer, he would tell you, be sure to say that because that's going to prove that you knew something that, that not that many people could right. know. And of course, in the Michael Jackson case, which by the way, this was erroneous, but to most people, one of the biggest supposed facts, even though it's not a fact in the Michael Jackson case, is that one of the accusers cited a um, identifying characteristic of Michael Jackson's genitalia. Now that turned out to be not true and not accurate. That's a whole nother story, but that in the public's perception was a huge part of the, that case. And in this case, it, it was absolutely uh, malpractice on the part of his very uh, in over his head attorney, Joe Mandola. Uh, for to not bring in the medical records because I think the medical records on in and of themselves create reasonable doubt uh, to a rational person. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, I, to me, I don't understand how you know, one of the many, many, many problems in this case is for lots of heterosexual men. You know, heterosexual men should be the people that understand how how ridiculous this case is to begin with. Because if you're a heterosexual man, you've been a heterosexual teenage boy. And you know what the average heterosexual teenage boy's reaction to this kind of thing is going to be. And by the way, all these accusers are heterosexuals. You would definitely be telling your friends that this dude has no balls. Well, I mean, there's no doubt about that. You would fight back. You would, you, there would be a yeah, fight for and sure. flight. If you're 15, for sure. There would be a fight yeah. and flight uh, phenomenon. You would never go back to see him again. Um, you would tell somebody in all likelihood. Uh, it, none of that happened. Um, but unfortunately, because of the nature of are you know understandable our our perception of child sex abuse and, and and homosexuality for a lot of heterosexual men this entire subject makes their minds explode and so they don't think rationally and ironically the the demographics that I have seen that are most open to understanding what really happened here one are middle aged conservative minded women who have had teenage boys as sons they immediately realize this story is bullshit. Um, but the other demographic that understands how much bullshit the story is are homosexual men. When you tell homosexual men, as I have on numerous occasions, the details of this story, they immediately go bullshit, 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 because these stories read like gay porn being written by straight men. And that's exactly what they are. These stories were written by straight accusers and straight lawyers pretending to be gay porn and they don't ring true because it's not based in, in reality. And gay men see that on automatically. If, if I had, if there was ever a retrial, which there should be, but there won't be of Jerry Sandusky, 
you know, the first thing I would say is, you know, make sure that on your jury, you get gay men and middle-aged conservative women who have had teenage boys. Because <laughs> if you get those two groups on this jury, it's going to be unanimously an acquittal. Because this, when, when, they, when they hear the facts, when they hear the actual allegations, the stories are obviously bullcrap. Well, John, uh, as, as we discussed earlier, th- there would be no way to do much more than just scratch the surface here. So even though we've, we've seemingly done a d- bit of a deep dive, this is really not a deep dive. You've done a real deep dive on your podcast with the benefit of hindsight. So uh, certainly let people know where they can go back and find that and let them know where they can find everything else you're doing right now with the death of journalism and feel free to promote anything else you got going on. Well, yeah, our, our podcast, uh, when, by the way, it's not just me. I have a co-host by the name of Liz Habib, former television sportscaster of the Fox affiliate here in Los Angeles, who at the beginning of all this be- believed in the whole media narrative. She went to Pitt, University of Pittsburgh, Penn State's rival, and she does a great job of really playing the role of the listener as I take you through this remarkable journey. And the podcast is called With the Benefit of Hindsight, which you can easily find everywhere. By the way, if you go to Twitter, my Twitter feed, Zygmunt Freud, my pinned tweet has all of those episodes in the thread there if you're a Twitter person. And so, um, and then every Tuesday and Thursday, we release episodes of the death of journalism, which I also tweet out uh, at Zygmunt Freud. So you can find that there. So the death of journalism twice a week and uh, with the benefit of hindsight, which is really an epic, epic podcast that once most people get interested in it, they they can't step away from it because it's rather addictive because it's a remarkable story that has not been told in the news media. And and you're going to learn not just about this case, you're going to learn about the nature of the modern news media. And and frankly, (laughs) you know, um, I think you're also going to understand COVID a lot better. I know that sounds crazy, but there are a lot of parallels And one of the reasons why I think I was way ahead of the curve and seeing what was going on with COVID, which was real, Jerry Sandusky is not really a pedophile, but one of the things that you're going to find is that there are a lot of parallels in how the COVID narrative took hold and changed the world. And similarly, what happened with Penn State, Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky. So it's not just about this case. You're going to learn a lot about the world and our media and how things like COVID end up happening that seem inexplicable, but actually, you know, make a lot of sense in, in retrospect. And by the way, I'm an ardent, ardent anti-conspiracy person. I am, uh, this is, this sounds like a conspiracy theory. This is the opposite. My critics are the conspiracy theorists. I'm the person that looks at this rationally and goes, guys, this didn't happen. This makes no sense. And because w- there would be massive amounts of evidence if it did, and there's nothing. All right, well, John, well, that's actually a perfect transition to a quick bonus segment we're going to do in the smoke-filled room. So you can tell me about your hatred for conspiracy theories in there. But I do thank you for your time. And uh, please, uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on my show. Thanks a lot. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John Ziegler. And uh, I, I almost wanted to call it, I hope you enjoyed our deep dive. And it it felt like a deep dive. I'm sure if it's your first time diving into this subject, it is a deep dive. Uh, but let me tell you, we really only did scratch the surface. As I said, John has done an entire podcast series just on this subject called With the Benefit of Hindsight. He's also done a number of interviews with my friend and former colleague, uh, John Odermatt over on the Lions Liberty Network. You can see all of those over there. John's also done another, a few interviews connected to the case as well. He 
He's interviewed Graham Spanier. He's interviewed a fake Sandusky accuser who went through the process to basically declare you're an accuser to try to get money. He he went through that process to expose the process and how easy you could call yourself an accuser. So John Oderman has done some fantastic work. Hopefully he'll create a dedicated link that I can point you to by the time this airs. We shall see. Uh, but of course, John Ziegler is, is the source on the majority of this stuff and he has just done incredible work. So if this interests you at all, I'd highly recommend checking out The Benefit of Hindsight and or With the Benefit of Hindsight, I should say. And then of course, John's current work on the death of journalism is absolutely interesting in its own right. So please do check out John Ziegler's work and check out the rest of this conversation because it did continue in the smoke-filled room where we touched on a little bit John's thoughts on the JFK assassination, why he hates conspiracy theories. Yes, that's what we talked about in the smoke-filled room, as well as his thoughts on the Michael Jackson case, especially as filtered through what we just discussed today about Jerry Sandusky. So if that sounds good to you, head on over to any of these platforms that I'm on for uh, my supporters, Patreon, Subscribestar, Rockfin. Uh, you can head over to make it easy to markclair.com, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. You got all the links there. You got all the video links. You got uh, all the sponsor links. You got what else? You got all the ways you can support the show. Probably some other stuff. I link you to my comic book podcast. By the way, I should say, an interview I just did on the Second Print Comics podcast a couple of weeks ago is very relevant to this audience and you'll really enjoy it. We talked about the occult origins of superheroes with Chris Knowles, who's been, of course, been on this show before talking about Super Bowl halftime occult rituals. So do head over to Second Print Comics. Check that one out as well. My friends, until next week, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.